Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Geezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. Happy New Year! I hope you had fun celebrating the start of 2020. Unfortunately, the New York got off to a rough start in the sports world as former NBA Commissioner David Stern died at the age of 77. I'll speak with the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio and Gilderland High School graduate Mark Kesteser about Stern's legacy. Well, if my voice sounds kind of funny, well, this is the reason why. Yes, my Philadelphia Eagles, despite all the adversity they faced this season, some of it self-inflicted, won the NFC East title this past Sunday when they beat the New York Giants 34-17 at MetLife Stadium. My son Steven and I made the trip down to the game. We had great seats behind the Eagles bench, but we stood the entire time. We did a lot of singing and cheering with many of our fellow Eagles fans in the rain. The Eagles will host the Seattle Seahawks on Sunday in the NFC wildcard round at Lincoln Financial Field. My first guest is a sports columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer. We talked about the Eagles and also about a very controversial column he wrote last summer about a Philadelphia institution. Wawa. Here is my conversation with Mike Sielski. Well, Mike, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure, Ken. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate it. I hope you can put up with my voice a little bit. Still recovering from uh, the game Sunday where my son and I were down at MetLife Stadium to watch the Eagles win the NFC East. It was a, a great time in some, uh, you know, not great conditions. But um, your view of the Eagles this year, Mike, it just, <coughs> excuse me. Um, yeah, this team went 9-7, and seven, wins the NFC East with the, the type of roster that would be lucky to win. Most teams win five games. What does it say about this team that, they were able to do what they did. Uh, well, I think it says a couple of things. Number one, it speaks to the nature of the schedule they had, which is that it got, um, you know, a lot easier late in the season. Uh, the NFCs turned out to be not very good, um, and that helped. But to give the Eagles the credit they deserve, um, you know, this is the third season in a row where they've been playing their best in the games that matter most late in the year. You know, whether it was the Super Bowl run in 2017, whether it was the push you know, last December and into the playoffs, just to get into the playoffs and then take the Saints to the limit in the NFC Divisional Round. And now this year, just to get in with all these injuries and all these, you know, anonymous guys, you know, playing an offense, helping Carson Wentz, um, I think that speaks to, you know, the, the kind of coach that Doug Peterson is. You know, this happens once, that's one thing. This happens three times, that's not a coincidence. So, um, you know, I think I've learned my lesson when it comes now to, to evaluating the Eagles. Um, you know, I, after the loss to Seattle, I had hammered them pretty hard and, and then they went and lost to Miami the week after that. And, uh, 
you know, I think everybody thought they were a dead team walking, and, and here they weren't. So, you know, now we know. Now you got to, you know, this is a team that under this coach and, and with this quarterback, you got to wait for them to play the full 16 before you evaluate them. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the Miami game a lot. You know, everybody, the experts were saying, well, the Eagles have an easy schedule in December. They should be able to go 5-0. and And then the Miami game happened, and everything's, like you said, it's like a dead team walking, and they play the Giants next week. And then they were really lethargic in that first half. And you thought, okay, it, this is done. We're done. But it seemed from that game on, and in the Washington game, they, they struggled. But they, they're finding ways to win games. Maybe that's something they weren't doing early in the season. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, if you go back to some of those early season games, um, you know, the thing that stands out to me are, thinking back to them, are the mistakes that they made that led to their – those losses. You think back to the Nelson Aguilar drop against the Falcons in week two, where he's streaking down the sideline, has a sure touchdown. Carson Wentz puts, puts the football right on him in a big spot, and he just doesn't catch it. Same thing against the Lions. You know, there's a fourth down play late. Wentz throws the ball to the end zone to J.J. Arthago West side. Whiteside drops it. It's a sure touchdown, a game-winning touchdown. He doesn't make the play. Um, you know, and that, you see that often enough and you start to think, well, that's just the team they are. The difference between being a, a really good team and a not-so-good team is that the really good team makes those plays. Well, now you see them the last four weeks and Wentz is still putting the ball in those spots, except Greg Ward makes the catch against the Redskins. Um, you know, And Dallas Goddard is tiptoeing along the sidelines to make these incredible catches. And um, you know, they're just, they're playing a, a more solid brand of football. And again, part of that is who they're playing against, but the other part of it is that they're just playing better. And the Goddard catch, I mean, that, that was amazing. I mean, we saw, I saw it live and it was like, I thought it was a great catch. And you see it on the replay and when you get home, he's like, oh my God, it's like a ballet dancer with that. Uh, almost like a Jerry Rice yep. knowing uh, where he was in the, uh, in the field and putting his two feet down. It was, that was just an amazing catch. And I think also the Boston Scott one-handed grab, um, that uh, he you know, got a first down on early in the game. It's uh, it, you know, maybe early in the season, they don't catch those balls. That, that's exactly right. And I do think there's there's an element of, if you want to call it addition by subtraction, if you want to call it, you know, fresh blood, however you want to call it, it's, you know, Wentz is much looser um, with this, this young core guys. They certainly have brought an energy and a, kind of a competence in a way, weird way that, uh, you know, Alshon Jeffrey and, and Aguilar and these other guys who've been playing earlier in the year just didn't bring. Um, they're catching the ball when it's thrown to them. You don't see them dropping the ball as often uh, as those other receivers did early on. And I think that makes a difference. Um, you know, they don't know that they're not supposed to be here. And I think that matters. Carson Wentz has been a lightning rod for the fans. Uh, you know, people think he's not Nick Foles because Nick Foles led the Eagles to the uh, Super Bowl in, uh, in Super Bowl 52. But I think a lot of fans seem to forget that Wentz was having an MVP caliber year when he was got hurt in 2017. I mean, I think he pressed too much last year coming back and ended up hurting his back. And he was still taking a lot of shots from the fans this year. And they say, oh, well, we you know, should never gotten Rick, uh, gotten rid of Nick Foles. But I think over the last few weeks, uh, Carson Wentz has been showing what he's made of, and I think he's you know he throws for over four thousand yards this year, and none of his receivers caught uh, more than five hundred yards of receptions. What does it say about his character? Uh, the the fact that you know 
fans been on him. Maybe some of the media's been on him. Uh, just this character and you know, leading this team to the playoffs. Oh, I think it says that he's the quarterback that everybody thought he was going to be, um, and everyone hoped he was going to be. Um, I mean, he's been he's been you know as great as he's been over the last three or four weeks. Um, you know, he's he's really been very good. Uh, even go back to last season and look at his numbers. Um, you know, they improved in just about every regard from that MVP season. Now the Eagles weren't winning games, but it wasn't necessarily all because of Wentz. Um, you know, and look, they gave him all that money. They had to give him all that money, and you know, he's proving that he's worth it. Um, and this is kind of what teams who find a quarterback like Wentz or Aaron Rodgers um, or franchise guy want from him it is even when we're shorthanded in some other areas he's so good that he keeps us in the hunt anyway and that's what he's done you know um are they going to make it to the super bowl i would be very very surprised if they did but it wouldn't surprise me to see them beat the seahawks this weekend and if they do that then all of a sudden the season takes on a whole new sheen and you know that's what you want from a franchise quarterback yeah i mean to me i mean I think the critics of Wentz tend to forget it's a two-way game here. I mean, Wentz doesn't play defense. I mean, he didn't give up those touchdowns against Miami. It's just like, and just to me, that's a, I, I mean, there's some aspects of this game that Wentz needs to prove on, and I, I know that. But it just seems like the fans just want to blame him for everything, and it just does not make sense. Yeah, and I do think that um, he has been judged on a different by a different standard. Um, than Nick Foles was. And I think in large part that's because Wentz was the number two overall pick. Uh, he was the guy that the Eagles traded up to get. You naturally expect uh, great things from a player with that sort of expectation attached to him. And Nick Foles is a third-round guy who came out of nowhere in 2013 to you know, excel for the Eagles, 27 touchdowns, two interceptions under Chip Kelly. He gets cast off. He thinks about retiring. He comes back. Wentz gets hurt. He plays incredibly great against the Vikings and the Patriots and wins the Super Bowl. But go back and watch those games, uh, those two playoff games last year against the Bears and the Saints. He's not good in those games. Um, yet he's still regarded as a hero there here because of who he is and what he had done. So uh, I do think people are judging Wentz more harshly because they're judging him um, under the standard that Nick Foles set. They're measuring everything that Wentz does by what Nick Foles did, and they're measuring everything uh, not so great that Nick Foles might have done against the great things that Nick Foles did. Um, so it's it's kind of a no-win situation for Wentz in that regard, and I think until he wins the Super Bowl, there's always going to be a small contingent of people who say, he's no Nick Foles. Yeah. Okay, Nick Foles had a lot of things go right, and Nick Foles deserves a ton of credit for what he did in that Super Bowl year, but you know, that doesn't mean that Carson Wentz hasn't been great, too. Yeah. I mean, I, I think these fans also tend to forget that, you know, they were calling for Nick Sud, uh, um, Nate Sudfeld to, to uh, start the playoff game against Atlanta because uh, Foles looked so terrible against the Raiders in that Christmas night uh, game and Monday night. And then, he, you know, he only played, what, one series against Dallas in the season finale and looked awful in that one. It's like, I think people tend to forget that, hey, Nick Foles looked bad in those last two regular season games. I mean, Nate Sudfeld, come on. Really? <laughs> yeah, no, but that, that was a real question. Um, and, you know, the other thing that people forget is how much the Eagles revamped their offense after the regular that 2017 regular season ended and the 2017 playoffs began. You know, Doug Peterson, Frank Reich, and John D. Filippo put their heads together 
and said, what can we do to help Nick as much as we can? And they, they went to those, you know, re pass options, run pass options more often, uh, because Foles liked them. And, you know, the, it worked. It won a Super Bowl for them. Um, and all of a sudden, you know, there was no film on the Eagles with Nick Foles. You know, everything they did was a surprise. So, um, you know, that, that factors into it. People don't take that into consideration. We mentioned Doug Peterson, but just the fact, I mean, when he was hired, a lot of people were questioning the hiring. Who's Doug Peterson? What's he like? And what has he meant to this organization and the, the job he's done, you know, three straight years in the playoffs, especially the last two years, really having to grind it to get to the playoffs? Yeah, I think it goes beyond that, Ken. I think it goes to something that um, I undersold uh, when Doug became the coach, um, but has proven to be pretty valuable, which is that by all indications, Doug doesn't complain and doesn't want uh, more power and control than he has. He's happy to coach the players that he's given and the football team that he's given. And um, I think that helps, that goes a long way. You know, I thought that initially he was kind of a lame duck in waiting, um, that if things, you know, heading into the 2017 season, if things didn't go well for the Eagles, well, we knew whose fault it was going to be. It was probably going to be considered Doug's fault, and he would lose his job. But he took what they gave him and won a Super Bowl with it, and he's been continually doing that ever since, um, where, okay, you need me to, to use the practice squad receivers? I'll do that, and I'll win games with them. And by all accounts, he doesn't complain about that. He doesn't say, hey, I'm a genius. You know, give me more power. Give me this. Give me that. He's content to coach football and let the front office do what it does, and the formula seems to be working. So yeah, it's to be sort of the anti Chip Kelly. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I mean, to me, I compare him to Charlie Manuel because I know when the Phillies hired Charlie Manuel, it was like Phillies fans, who's this guy? He's a, from West Virginia. He's he's talks funny and all that stuff. And now Charlie Manuel is probably the most beloved uh, sports figure outside of maybe uh, the Eagles and uh, Doug Peterson in Philadelphia. Just I think yeah, Doug's going to be probably in that category once he uh, stops away from coaching. Yeah, I think you're right. I think the, the, the one quality that they share, apart from being underestimated initially by the fan base and the media, uh, was that they didn't give a rip what fans thought. Or if they did, they didn't show that they cared. They didn't, you know, especially with Charlie. I mean, Charlie insisted, like, get to know me, you're going to like me. And that was true, you know. And he was the perfect manager for that team at that time. And I think Doug was the perfect coach for that 2017 team. It had a a really good veteran core and a guys who would police themselves and challenge each other. He could be a player's coach and count on getting the most out of those guys. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, so much of coaching success is timing, um, and circumstance. And I think both of those guys, you know, to their credit, were the right men at the right time for their teams. Well, let's look at Sunday's matchup against Seattle. We know uh, the Seahawks came into Philadelphia early this year, won 17 to nine, as you mentioned, a game where the Eagles were, were awful. What's going to be the key this time around for the Eagles? I mean, they, they seem like they were a lot better than they were in that uh, previous matchup against the Seahawks. Yeah, well, they should have more success offensively. I mean, that was an awful game by Wentz, committed a bunch of turnovers. You know, they were just bad on offense all around. Uh, it's hard to imagine them playing that badly again. Um, you know, Russell, Russell Wilson always worries me. He can, he can you know, conjure – uh, great plays out of thin air, uh, it seems, but they did hold him to 17 points that first time around. 
Uh, and so you hope that they're able to kind of contain him again. Um, you know, I think it'll be a close game. I think that, again, it wouldn't surprise me if the Eagles won. I would take Seattle. I just think they're, they're a better team. But um, with the way Wentz is playing right now, um, I wouldn't put it past the Eagles to, to upset the Seahawks. And, you know, I mean, the, the advantage the Eagles have is they are pl- totally playing with house money. I wrote this after the Giants game that they are in the perfect position for any Philadelphia team right now. You know, it's it's not just underdogs for talk or for show. They are legitimate underdogs. There's no pressure on them. And Philadelphia teams, and particularly Philadelphia fans, in creating the kind of like culture or environment to support a team, thrive in those sorts of situations. They want to be Rocky running up the art museum steps. They live that. And I think that makes the Eagles dangerous, at least this week. They can play with nothing to lose. So like the uh, two years ago when they, the Falcons were the favorite going in that um, NFC Divisional Series exactly. games, like, you know, so you exactly. get, get the underdog, underdog mascot again. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it fits, it fits even more this time because they don't have, they won't have home field advantage throughout the playoffs. Um, there are so many, they're missing so many players. You know, it's the inverse of what happened in 2017. Back then it was, you know, the, the, the backup was Nick Foles. And, it, you know, they, they still were pretty solid all around on offense and defense. Now it's Carson Wentz is practically the only starter left standing, and everybody on offense is a, is a substitute or a former former practice squad player. So uh, we'll see how this goes. Yeah. Well, you're a great sports columnist for the Philadelphia Inquirer, but you wrote something um, on July 4th that uh, caused a lot of controversy in Philadelphia and with my son because he's a, a big fan of the uh, institution that is known as Wawa. You said you said that the uh, hokey basically is not what it's you know, their hokies are not uh, the big deal. Like you know, you, know, you should go to a hokey shop and get a real hokey. Uh, what was the reaction like to that column? Well, the reaction uh, was unlike anything I've experienced before or since. Um, I can tell you, Ken, it was the most read co- column I wrote all of 2019 by a wide margin. Um, and the reason I wrote it is. I had gone to a uh, Lehigh Valley Iron Picks game with a group of friends. You know, we took our, you know, several couples. We took our kids, uh, tailgated, and one of the families brought Wawa Hogies. And this happened right at the same time the city of Philadelphia um, had a big event in Center City celebrating Hogie Fest. And it occurred to me that Philadelphia and the surrounding area celebrates Wawa Hogies to a degree that Hogies just don't warrant. I mean, I like Wawa a lot. But Philadelphia is the best sandwich city in America. And we go, we, we treat Wawa hoagies like they're some kind of delicacy. And um, so I wrote a column basically saying, like, you know, let's do better. Let's let's aim higher than the shorty, um, especially since, um, you know, the quality of Wawa, Wawa's hoagies in recent years has declined as they've gotten bigger and turned more into even more of a kind of a convenience store. Um you know, so yeah, the, the, the column generated a lot of feedback, uh, a lot of response, much of it positive, some of it negative. Um, but yeah, I'm going to stick to writing about sports and stay away from sandwiches from now on. <laughs> well, I told you, my son and I went to the, as I told you earlier, we went to the game Sunday down at MetLife. And we stopped at a Wawa in Hackensack before the game for lunch and after the game for dinner. So, that my, guy, well done. Well done. <laughs> my son is, my, I mean, I mean, as I told you before we went on the uh, start of the interview here, I mean, I grew up in Philadelphia. I'm 56 years old. I grew up in the 70s. And Wawa, maybe I was just blind of it, but 
it wasn't a big deal. I mean, back in where I grew up in Northeast Philadelphia, Morrell Park, it was either you go to 7-Eleven, get the Slurpee, and or, and play some uh, video games down there. But it, well, to me, we, we had we had a Wawa off of uh, Knights Road, which now closed because they were having uh, problems there with uh, robberies and all that stuff. But uh, I mean, it was never a big deal. Now, now it's Wawas are everywhere in Jersey, Washington D.C., Florida. I mean, I, I do wish they'd bring one up uh, to upstate New York here in Schenectady. It'd be kind of nice to have one in my sunken, you know, owner or something. Yeah, I didn't know there was one in Hackensack. The one farthest north that I've seen is in um, uh, just above Flemington, New Jersey, on uh, Route 202, mm-hmm. um, almost into Bridgewater. Um, so it's good to know that they're branching out in the Hackensack. Like I said, I love their coffee. I love all the other stuff they have. I just think that, uh, you know, there are better, much, 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 much better hoagies out there. Uh, you know, small businesses who are trying to make it, who are doing good stuff, and, and you know, we should support them instead of, if it comes to hoagies, we should support them instead of the juggernaut that is Wawa. Yeah, because, I mean, there used to be hoagie shops down in the Morale, at the Morale Plaza. I think Hoagie City was there, there at one point. And, uh, you know, you've got cheesesteaks, you go to Pat's or Gino's or um, anywhere down South Street, just so I, to me, it would get a really good cheesesteak. But, uh, we like I said, we do love Wawa, and, but, uh, it was like it was a very good read of column. I found it very interesting, and uh, you made some great points in that. Thank you, I appreciate that. So, so Mike, where can uh, people follow you on Twitter? Uh, they can follow me at Mike Sielski, M I K E S I E L S K I. You can also find me uh, at the Philadelphia Inquirer's website, Inquirer dot com, Inquirer with an I. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks very much for having me well, on. Well, I appreciate it. I appreciate it, Mike. And also, one more thing. Uh, I just sure. mentioned that uh, when you do some, do some tweets, sometimes you do uh, put uh, some joking tweets and you put my column. And I, I, I'm amazed to me that people are like, where's the link to the column? Where's the link to the column? And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, to me, if they, if they wanted us to take it seriously, they wouldn't have called it Twitter. That's <laughs> um, just such a silly word. So, yeah, I do tend to joke on my Twitter account, but uh, I also tweet out my stories and my columns there, too. So uh, I'd appreciate anyone who wants to do a follow. Well, Mike, appreciate it. And uh, happy 2020. And uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to talk soon. You too, Ken. Thanks so much. Up next, Mark Kessester reflects on the legacy of former NBA Commissioner David Stern. You're listening to the Party Shots podcast, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Hi, this is Albany football coach Greg Atuso. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast with Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Back on the Parting Shots Podcast, and unfortunately, the NBA suffered a very uh, major loss on New Year's Day as the commissioner, former commissioner of the NBA, David Stern, who ran the league for 38 years, turned it from a laughingstock to an international powerhouse, uh, passed away uh, after suffering a brain hemorrhage back on December 12th. And my next guest interviewed uh, Mr. Stern a few times during his uh, time on ESPN Radio. He is the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio and the Gilderland High School graduate. Uh, Mark Kessler joins me here. Mark, uh, Happy New Year, and I wish we could be talking on uh, better circumstances. Ken, same thing. Happy New Year to you. And, you know, out of all the sadness, because as I get older, you know, my dad is 77, born the same year as David Stern in 1942. And, and as I get older, I feel like, boy, he, he, he passed away so young. And it really is when you look at all he accomplished and when he retired just a few years ago and seemingly in great shape and, you know, hoping to have, you know, maybe another 20, 25 good years before he went. So kind of, you know, very sad on that front, but also good to reflect on, you know, every 
old who have always known the NBA as a, you know, a powerhouse league. It's a good history lesson uh, in the league itself and certainly how uh, David Stern helped uh, bring it to the heights. Because I, mean, I remember back growing up in Philadelphia, uh, 1980 NBA Final Game 6, the Magic Johnson game uh, that you know, he played center when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar had a migraine, didn't even make the trip to Philadelphia for the uh, uh, title-clinching game. Everywhere else around the country except in Philadelphia and I believe Los Angeles, the game was shown on tape delay. That's how low the league was at one point before Stern took over. What was his what do you think his influence was in uh, in getting this league to where it's at now? You know, it's it's an interesting confluence, I think, of situations. One, I mean, it was you're right, it was as low as it could go. You've got your finals on tape delay. I think at one point the estimation was fifty to maybe seventy percent of the players in the, the late seventies in the NBA may have been using cocaine, so it was a big drug problem uh, in the league as well. I think I read Charles Barkley mentioning when he came into the league, the average salary was two hundred fifty thousand um, dollars. They were talking contraction, mm-hmm. getting rid of teams. I want to say more than half of the teams had were losing money. Uh, I mean, it, all signs were pointing down, and then you know you get um, first coming out of college with Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. You you referenced uh, Magic in his rookie year, right in nineteen seventy nine, nineteen eighty season. Bird was right there with him, um, and then in Philadelphia, certainly with the rise of the Dr. J Sixers, the Celtics and Lakers rivalry from the '60s is reborn in the '80s, and then of course, you know, the the third pick in the draft uh, in 1984 is Michael Jordan, and and he turns out to be you know an international superstar, and the Bulls win six championships. So I, I think it's a confluence of. A savviness for uh, you know television negotiation. Uh, add to that you know a willingness to go beyond the borders of the United States and, and sell the game to the world, which already had seeds sown you know uh, you know ten to twenty years before by some of the best coaches uh, in the NBA around the world, and then marketing the players who we just talked about coming into the league and those guys turning into you know the Hall of Famers that they've become. I think all of that and the explosion of the 80s in television and the explosion of the internet in the 90s, um, it just was a a huge confluence of events uh, to turn what looked like a league that was languishing and maybe dying uh, into arguably, um, you know, the top sport on the globe. And the one thing he did was he promoted the superstars. He promoted Magic. He promoted Larry Jordan. It was those players, I mean, all of a sudden now it's not, you know, people are starting to root for players, and now you, you got to identify uh, players and, and teams, and, and I think that, that helped. And especially now also, you know, Cable coming into the 80s too is a major influence. But I think the fact that he started, had the league market its superstars really got things going. I think it's still, you know, some of the leagues are still behind in that. They are, and, and you know, basketball has something that the other sports, don't get, and I'm talking like the, the main North American sports, though soccer is becoming, uh, you know, obviously a, a big sport uh, in this country, but uh, the, the court is small, you know, the guys are wearing tank tops, there's no helmet, there's no baseball cap, um, you know, they're just so visible and recognizable, and you know, you don't get that, obviously, in the NFL, uh, you don't get it as much uh, in hockey with uh, all the gear, 
And, you know, if you have a baseball, Major League Baseball player without his hat on, it's, it's amazing uh, how much, you know, a difference can make without wearing your hat. But a lot of times you're just not as recognizable. So I think on some level, marketing the stars and their visibility and how perfectly, um, you know, basketball can be broadcast on television. I think all of those were, uh, were favorable to David Stern and the NBA in its growth years. And, of course, the league started to expand. They went Miami, Orlando. They went to Canada. Had two teams there for a time. And, of course, Vancouver ended up um, – the Grizzlies ended up moving to Memphis. And, finally, you know, we see, we're seeing Toronto really embracing the NBA over the last few years. Uh, the Raptors won the championship last year. Do you think this was his ultimate vision to see uh, teams uh, outside the U.S. finally win uh, a title? I think so, and he probably would be, uh, probably was uh, surprised it took as long as it did. Uh, I think it was about 25 years, right? Right, When the uh, Raptors came in in 95 until winning the championship a few months ago. I think his ultimate vision, at least as I recall, um, you know, in those heady days and the growth of the 80s and into the 90s, was maybe to have a division of teams in Europe. It seemed possible, didn't it? I mean, yeah. you, you think of London and Paris, um, and there's there's great leagues in Spain, professional leagues in Spain, obviously, in Italy and in Germany. I think there was some thought that it, it, the NBA, and I know the NFL has had this same feeling, that they could have a division of overseas teams. I think we've come to see, uh, especially with the NFL, you know, the distance, uh, maybe if the Concord plane was still around and you could go Mach 2 from coast to coast, you know, maybe it would be more efficient. Uh, I don't know if it's a, it's a reality, but I think, uh, you know, beyond the, the um, you know, getting across the Pacific and the Atlantic was probably the ultimate that he was looking at. But I'm sure he was incredibly proud, uh, you know, to have one of his Canadian franchises come up with a championship as it did this past year. Yeah, I was just reading a New York Times story we're going to run in the paper. We ran in the paper in uh, Thursday's edition that the fact that I mean, he was a taskmaster. He, he was like uh, iron fisted, but he was also, you, you see him on television, uh, hear him on the radio. He, he had a great personality. And I think the fact that he was able to sell this league with, with him uh, leading the way really got things going. He was tough to figure out. Um, I, I interviewed him a number of times. The last time I interviewed him was the final NBA draft that he did before he turned over uh, the NBA to his deputy commissioner, Adam Silver, of course, now the uh, the NBA commissioner. And he could be so difficult in an interview. Obviously, when you read uh, the obits like the Times piece that Mark Stein wrote, um, <laughs> there were people that were really frustrated with him, whether they were television partners players, team owners, broadcasters, whomever. He was hard, but at the end of it all, he also had this great soft side. And we saw that after he turned, he did the first round like he always did, and then he was done. He knew that was it for him as commissioner, and he gave us the best 15 to 20 minute interview we ever had. I mean, I've never seen him so unguarded, smiling, just enjoying, you know, what he had just done for 30 years. And that's why he was difficult to figure out, because he was so smart, he was so difficult, yet there was, um, you know, kind of a a teddy bear inside there somewhere. I know, um, knowing a bunch of league executives, I remember when Adam Silver took over as commissioner, and maybe within a year or two, I had asked someone what the difference was. And they just kind of rolled their eyes at me, and they said, well, for example, 
my boss went on sabbatical for six months, which would have never happened <laughs> in the David Stern era. You know, Adam Silver is very much into, you know, uh, the new ways of uh, the new science, I guess you would be, of, of your employees that work so hard, you know, five, six, sometimes seven days a week for months on end. And now they're getting, you know, six month sabbaticals in the middle to do other things that have, that interest you. So it's, you know, it's a whole different lifestyle now. But uh, they all, all, everyone in the league office, as hard as it may have been, um, again, there was great fruit. He was a great leader. Um, sometimes past the bombast, you know, there was that inner teddy bear that they would get from him. And certainly, uh, you know, the way the league ended up going, uh, there was a you know, a shared confirmation that what they had done had gone to something uh, really important and impressive. I mean, the, the, I think toward maybe toward the end of his uh, tenure as commissioner, he started to have, um, he's getting probably getting a little more criticized. I think the one example was the dress code he wanted to have enforced on the players. That's just seemed a little heavy handed. Maybe toward the end, I mean, the, the, did the players end up maybe having a little more too much power than he did? Yeah, you know, I think, um, you know, that was the big contention, right? It was that 2011? That was the year the league started on Christmas Day. That was the lockout, yeah, where they lost a bunch of games. I think they had 66 regular season games. That was a tough one. Um, the players felt uh, about as emboldened as they had ever felt because here you have, you know, the great success of the 80s, the 90s, you know, the first decade of the 2000s, and now the players wanted to turn the tide on their side. I'm not sure the commissioner wanted to go there. Um, and they got, you know, pretty close to 50-50. I don't recall the, the, the final, whatever it was, the basketball uh, players index. I forget what the, uh, the three-letter acronym was, uh, but they did get into the 50s. The players did. And, um, you know, it was acrimonious. You're right. There was, I think, Allen Iverson is the person I recall uh, who was mostly at the center of uh, the dress code. Remember, they changed the basketball, yeah, which yeah. Ended, uh, I think it was uh, Steve Nash who kind of led the revolt on that one. Um, so that there were some issues, but I think when it was all said and done at the end, um, you know, there were generations of basketball players who realized we would not have it as good as we have it now with that more than 50% revenue uh, to the players. You know, if it wasn't for a guy like David Stern and certainly his successor, uh, Adam Silver, it's, uh, you know, it was an amazing story uh, that unfolded over three decades and still is kind of evolving. Um, and it's just it's so sad that, you know, uh, we've lost him at, at 77. How do you think he would have, if he was still, still commissioner, handled the load management aspect of the game? <laughs> you know, I sometimes wonder that these last few years on, on some of the stuff that's come up, whether it was uh, reducing the schedule, the four and five uh, gone, um, adding two more weeks to the schedule so there's more off days because, you know, it does feel like of all the leagues, the NBA is uh, the one that I, I put quote-unquote kowtowing uh, <laughs> to the players. Um, I, I think it, it certainly wouldn't have gone uh, as smoothly. I'd be very interested to know what David Stern's own thoughts were on load management and changing schedules and, you know, allowing more for the players. I'm sure he had, uh, you know, great thoughts on that, but he had so much respect for Adam, who was, you know, his right-hand man, his deputy commissioner and lieutenant, that I was reading uh, some of Jack McCollum's uh, uh, tweets uh, today, and I, I think 
get in the way of what Adam was building, even though it was probably not everything that he would have done, certainly. I think he kind of drew that line and was like, I'm done. It's Adam's league. I'll help him if he asks for something. I'll give him my advice, but I won't go public with it. And, uh, uh, you know, that just adds to kind of the, um, the intrigue for the man who ruled kind of with a heavy hand, as we talked about here, but also kind of knew when his time was over. What will be his legacy? I think it's going to be the rebuild from uh, from a league that was really languishing financially uh, in the TV sphere and then to become a multi-billion dollar entity from not just, you know, first world uh, countries around the globe, but, you know, every third world country. I mean, we're... I'm always always amazed, as long as I've worked at ESPN Radio, when the press release would come out, you know, the NBA Finals being broadcast to 220 countries in 44 different languages, live, you know, like that, that's amazing, considering as we started this interview out with a Finals that was on tape delay, yeah. you know, in 1980. So I, I think that's always going to be his legacy, is how you could go to the middle of nowhere China and they knew who Michael Jordan was. Uh, they may have wanted his sneakers or to wear the Bulls logo. And, you know, that was really a tip of the cap to David Stern and his ability to see the future globally and also to resuscitate a league that now is right up there, you know, with the National Football League, who is always king, maybe even surpassed Major League Baseball, which is, you know, that would be unheard of if we talked about that you know, a decade or two ago. So I, I think that, that, that'll that end up being his legacy. Well, Mark, I appreciate a few minutes uh, talking here on this uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, uh, I know you, New Year's Day kind of tough, but I appreciate you spending a few minutes with me to talk about it, and uh, we'll talk again towards the, uh, the playoffs. Sounds good, Ken. Looking forward to it. All right, thank you. That's Mark Kessler of ESPN Radio and also Gilbert High School graduate. Back to wrap up the podcast in just a moment. Pro football fans, it's time again to match which with other pro football fans and win a prize by playing the Daily Gazette's You Pick 'em football game, sponsored by River Sportsbook. To play, go to dailygazette.com slash football and make your picks before the first game kicks off each week. If you have the most weekly points, you earn a one hundred dollar gift card to ShopRite. Play every week and you can win the grand prize of one thousand dollars. Play the Daily Gazette's You Pick 'em football game, sponsored by River Sportsbook at dailygazette.com slash football. Back to wrap up the podcast. The You Pick Em Football Contest will continue during the NFL playoffs. So please go to dailygazette.com and click on Contest and Promotions. I want to congratulate Daily Gazette News columnist Sarah Foss on defeating me in our weekly NFL picks this season. We each went 9-7 in Week 17. Sarah finished the year 166-89-1. I was 163-92-1. If you're a college hockey fan, look for my weekly ECAC hockey face-off selections at dailygazette.com slash sports slash parting shots. You can participate in the face-off selections by emailing your picks to me at shot, 
That's S-C-H-O-T-T at DailyGazette.com. Union Hockey beat writer Mike McAdam and I will be talking about the Dutchman on the next College Hockey-Centric podcast on Friday, January 3rd. We'll look back at the Dutchman's results last weekend at the Catamount Cup and look ahead to their North Country trip to face St. Lawrence and Clarkson this weekend. I'll have a conversation with Union Junior forward Parker Fu, who returned to the lineup last weekend after recovering from shoulder surgery. If you have questions or comments about Union Hockey, Mike and I will answer them. Send your questions to shot at dailygazette.com. That wraps up another edition of the Party Shots podcast. I'd like to thank my guest, Philadelphia Inquirer sports columnist Mike Sielski, and the voice of the NBA on ESPN Radio and Guildland High School graduate Mark Kesteser. The Parting Shots podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and CastBox. Subscribe today. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Slapshots. The views expressed on the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Shot. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time on the Party Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. Good day, good sports.